0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University, who today is joining us from the departure lounge of the Cape Town International Airport in Cape Town, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, it was labeled as the most racist ad ever. It sparked outrage across the Internet, uh, particularly on the English language, U.S. European Internet. But in our little corner of the web, boy, the past week... Just blew up, and it was all about an ad from a detergent company named Chao And I am sure that most of you listening to this program have either seen the ad or seen the coverage of it. But uh, for those of you who haven't, let me just quickly describe a picture here: a young black, presumably African man uh, is standing across the room from a, you know, uh, what it, what we think is his wife or his girlfriend. There is this kind of alluring "Come hither, to and then she proceeds to stuff him into a washing machine and pour some chowbi detergent in, and magically he comes out as a handsome, ethnically Han Chinese, who, of course, is his improved upon girl, uh, boyfriend or husband. The ad itself was a plagiarism, uh, f- plagiarized from an Italian ad many years earlier, which did something similar to it. Uh, so that's a separate issue, but what really kind of it conveyed was this message of, just the insensitivity on racial issues, and it sparked, again, outrage uh, throughout most of the English-speaking world. Uh, in China, though, there was a very different reaction, and in Africa there was a very different reaction, but now the story seems to be coming to some type of closure because the Shanghai Leishan Cosmetics Company that produces Bi detergent uh, has come up with an apology, albeit a half-hearted, half-ass apology. Uh, let me, Kobus, read you first the apology, and then I'm going to get your take on what's going on. Uh, the, the, the Shanghai Leishang Cosmetics Company said, We express regret that the ad should have caused controversy, but we will not shun responsibility for controversial content. We express our apology for the harm caused to the African people because of the spread of the ad and the over-amplification by the media. Now, Kobus, that last part of their statement, to me, is one of the more interesting aspects of this in part because they blamed the foreign media for instigating all of this and causing a hullabaloo when there really wasn't anything there. So I'd like to get your take on this as we kind of come to the end of this saga of this particular ad. What, in fact, did we learn from the experience, both from the Chinese point of view, which is the company and their statement and their their position and how Chinese netizens reacted to it, but also maybe for the the online outrage that erupted in the West in response to it. Give me your take on both of those issues.
1: It seemed to me that there's a kind of an expectation that Chinese media should stay in China and that, you know, the moment it, it moves transnationally and the rest of the world reacts to it, that is kind of a, you know, it is it, not that's not fair in some kind of way. That, that seems to be the, the reaction to it, that, you know, kind of that it plays in China and that's where it was. It was made for, and you, you know, kind of, and, and the rest of the world can't can't legitimately kind of complain about it. Um, and it seems to you know, kind of, to to play into a kind of a China is different than anywhere else, the same rules don't apply, kind of way of thinking. Um, what What also struck me about it is that to which extent, you know, the West to a large extent kind of created the concept of racism in the sense that it's it comes so 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 strongly from you know kind of from colonialism and slavery um and so we you know kind of it what what struck me is that in this case again the west became a very big player in a in a conversation that Essentially, you ha- should have happened between Africa and China, and you know, kind of, and a lot of what we saw there was was the West playing out to different aspects of its of some of its own racial kind of issues, um, in in this kind of case study. Am I am I being too
0: academic? You you, you are, I think, and I think you you're going to face some criticism for what you're saying from a lot of people because number one. The, you know, a lot of the commentators, both on our Facebook page but also on the Chinese web said, you know, Chinese people can't be racism, can't be racist because that's something that white people in the West do. And it sounds a little bit like what you're doing is kind of giving cover to that. And and, and at what point do okay, we let me stu-
1: let me kind of rearticulate that because that's not what I wanted to do. Like what what I meant is that yes, of course there's massive crazy racism in China. Um, but to discuss racism is to a certain extent, you know, kind of came, is is the the vocab that we use to discuss it, to to a certain extent, came out of the West. Um, And the kinds of racism that exist in different places, I think, are different. And they, you know, kind of, I haven't seen enough of an articulation of of maybe how those systems are different. Um, I'm not articulating this super clearly, but, you know, kind of, whether this is, was a very convenient uh, controversy for Western people to 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 participate in.
0: But here's the problem though because you know you and academics like Roberto Castillo who is the great uh, China Africa scholar out of of Hong Kong who does a lot of amazing work in southern China, Nicole Bana who is the blogger for Black Lives in China who we're going to speak with very shortly as well you know put context and nuance to all of this and, and a lot of the criticism that comes to you and me and it comes to them is that we are somehow kind of excusing, empowering, contextualizing, justifying what is really just blatant, pure, unadulterated, transparent racism. I mean, this was, you know, whether, you, whether the language comes from the West or whether it's from colonialism, that, who cares? This was just awful, awful stereotyping that was demeaning and dehumanizing.
1: Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, you know, kind of that, uh, it, it's, a, it's an awful piece of work um, and it needs to be condemned, you know. And, and to a certain extent, I think that that seems, that is very clear to me. And, I, and I, you know, there's no way of not condemning it. It's, you know, kind of, it's it's horrible, racist trash, you yeah. know. Um, but, you know, but 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 then once, once you have condemned it, you know, and, and please count me as condemning it, um, then you can also then from there on the site, you know, kind of, and seeing like where, like, which, what role the debate plays for which players in, you know, in that debate. And what struck me was that, you know, kind of, like, perfectly, this kind of of emergence of this kind of horrible racism should ideally have sparked off a, a conversation between Africa and China, you know, um, you know, and, and it didn't. It it essentially struck off a,
0: a, a conversation in the West with itself. Sure, but in defense of the West, yeah, but yeah, I guess ahead. you know, but black people aren 't uniquely in Africa, and I think that this issue no, was really about more about black people than necessarily Africans in one sense, but this debate yes. that you talk about, which is very interesting, CObus, was playing out in a lot of different areas during the kind of discussion that erupted online. Now, most of the discussion was, you know, was kind of simple and base. It was like, this is bad, this is terrible, this is the worst thing ever. And and people really kind of were commenting on this without any context of China. But two people in particular, I think, gave the most insightful analysis on this. One, again, is Roberto Castillo. And he wrote a post on his blog, AfricansinChina.net, on why the racist Chinese ad may not be as racist as you think. And what he does in this post, and it's a pretty long and detailed post that he wrote very late at night, um, and so he admitted that he was a little bit kind of blurry-eyed when he did it, but he gave a lot of the cultural explanations behind racial identity in China. And again, he's not trying to excuse this, but he is trying to put some nuance and and some context into kind of why Chinese people think the way they do about, you know, skin tone and racial identity and also kind of how they characterize others. Now, what's interesting is in response to Roberto's post, uh, Nicole Bana, again, the founder and, and blogger at Black Lives in China, she wrote a counter argument called Why the Racist Chinese Ad May Be Just as Racist As You Think. And I posed the question to her about when she wrote her piece, what did she think that the lessons that we take away from this whole affair were? Let's take a listen to our discussion with Nicole Bana and the lessons that we take away from the whole racist ad incident.
2: Uh, I don't know. I mean, I've been kind of um, talking with a number of people who have kind of differing perspectives on on what's going on. They feel like the story's been hijacked a little bit by the West, and they're kind of jumping on this bandwagon of being able to kind of scrutinise quite um, minutely, uh, scrutinise China and uh, the kind of race politics that goes on here, rather than looking at their own systematic problems that they have, which I... I see and agree, but I think it, it also can't be ignored. Um, I think it, I've read the article this morning of um, where the, the producers um, have apologised and they're putting things to right and they feel like they should be more sensitive. At first, they kind of rushed to their defence and said, you know, uh, culturally here, this isn't a major big deal. We don't see what the problem is. You're being highly sensitive. And now they kind of backtracked a little bit, so maybe they are seeing the kind of importance of you know now that you are kind of uh, coming more on an international stage. You're trying to develop more international connections and to have uh, more agreeable relationships and opening up to, to other people that are coming into the country, as we last spoke about. So I think they are beginning to see that there has to be um, a, more of a deeper reflection on these things.
0: Okay, I want to pick up on two issues that you raised here. One is the reaction in China and the other is the reaction in the West. Let's start with uh, the reaction in the West. Um, you pointed out the fact that there was a lot of indignation, BuzzFeed, the New York Times, Washington Post, you name it. Everybody picked up on the story, Vox. Yeah. And there was a sense to me that uh, it felt liberating for a lot of people in the West to kind of say, you see, it's not just us. It's other people that are Mm -hmm. equally as racist as us. And I felt like there was this kind of a little bit of smugness, a little bit in, you know, frankly, most of this coverage is being written by white people. We know this at Vox. We know there's very little diversity in the vast majority of news organizations in both Europe and the United States. Um, And so I think there was a little bit of smugness there. And I just want to kind of dive a little bit deeper into it. Now, that being said, they were absolutely 110 percent right that this was – probably one of the most racist ads that a lot of us have seen in the modern era. I mean, for a lot of us, this goes back, this is the kind of ad that you would have seen in the 1950s and 1940s in the United States. Uh, so it was That's shocking. Me. It was definitely shocking. Uh, but it just seemed a little bit smug. And I just want to kind of get your take a little bit more and also what the community that you you kind of move in in China, what their reaction was to to the Western kind of online outrage that kind of, you know, erupted so fast over this.
2: Surprisingly, in the circles that I run in, particularly on kind of black forums that I'm a part of, um, there was quite a division actually. Um, I think a lot of them were like, okay, we don't really see what the big deal is. Uh, This is kind of the status quo here in China or or living and working here and earning here. And, you know, we have to take it as for what it is. And then there was the natural kind of outburst and outcry and indignation about this. Um, So there was kind of mixed views in kind of black forum circles with individuals that I spoke with at work and, and friends, um, they were more kind. Of, they, they were sensitive to how this came across, but they also mentioned that you know, really, there isn't a big deal because it the intent wasn't behind it. Um, in terms of uh, the Western media, I mean, I responded to um, uh, uh, someone on uh, Twitter who said, you know, this hijacking of the story in the West and how the kind of the, the smugness that hey yeah look at this this is another symbol of of like what the racism that is um developing over here in the east and they're just as bad as us but i think it is what it is and i think what we need to do is stay focused on the premise that this is unacceptable and that it is that people here in china and and the the media outlets and coverage of uh racial things uh racial subjects need to be dealt with in a more uh sensitive and international global way and perspective and i think that's what we need to focus on not so much i mean we're all intelligent enough to be able to um, know the difference between sensationalized, you know, news and something that's picking up on on a relevant, with all the things that are going on around the world, a relevant um, topic that really does, in the end, affect us all internationally.
0: You know, let's talk now a little bit about the domestic Chinese, or actually, let's the ethnic Chinese response because it was interesting online to see. I saw two general reactions that came out. Uh, one is. What's the fuss about? You know, this was not racist. Chinese people can't be racist because only white people can be racist. That was a very common meme that kind of came out. Uh, The other one was this defensive crouch. And oftentimes when the Chinese are criticized by the international community, whether it's on human rights, on Tibet, on Xinjiang, on any number of different issues... Uh, the Chinese media and even Chinese netizens kind of fall into this defensive crouch, which is foreign meddling, foreign oversensitivity, foreign intervention, and it becomes this very kind of, you know, provincial response that people kind of go into. And those were the two things that I saw. It really highlighted to me, though, this, you know, we're speak Mars and Venus here, speaking two totally different languages. And, you know, Howard French, who's the acclaimed journalist... Uh, both China-Africa journalist as well as New York Times journalist, he wrote to me on Twitter on a post that he said that, you know, Chinese just don't have any understanding of multiculturalism. A friend of his recounted that to him. And so I'd like you to kind of talk about the Chinese response that you saw and, and what it was and, 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 you know, just to kind of wrap that up because it was of a totally different character in nature than what the rest of the world was talking about.
2: I mean, to be honest, in my circles, it's just not being spoken about. It's just not being talked about. Um, Even in the workplace, um, you know, with me working for one of the major media outlets here, you know, I would thought it would be um, a topic of discussion um, professionally and kind of socially as well, but it's just not being touched on. Um, I don't know whether, um, in my experience, it's out of embarrassment or not, not, not knowing what to say, or like you mentioned, just not seeing the big deal, just not seeing why it's newsworthy, why it's out there. Um, you know, multiculturalism, yeah, I would have to agree, you know, in most circles here in most societies in China, they're just not used to multiculturalism and it is a new concept and a new ideal um, but in some respects, in the article that i just I just posted, um, that isn't just that's just not enough. that is not a, a good rationale it's not an excuse for the kind of things that people of color uh, african community uh, in china go through and are victims of Um, and you know at some point we have to say okay when is when can we hold them accountable when can media outlets here chinese media outlets be held accountable when the producers of such things as this recent advert be held accountable when can we start saying actually you should know better and actually this is racism this is what it looks like and how can we now open up a dialogue and think about how we can approach things differently
0: okay let's talk about your article it's uh why the why the chinese ad the racist chinese ad may be just as racist as you think it's published on of course uh blacklivesinchina.wordpress.com blacklivesinchina.wordpress.com so i came under a little bit of criticism this past week uh, in in the type of language that I was putting out onto Twitter, which was this word of context. And I think you, me, and Roberto Castillo, and for those of you who don't follow Roberto Castillo, he is probably one of the, if not the leading scholars on Africans in China, particularly in southern China. And he, like you, penned very, very long articles to try and contextualize uh, where this was coming from. Not to excuse, not to rationalize or justify but to contextualize. And I think that's in part because those of us who are involved in China and and spend our lives kind of thinking about China, we were looking at the kind of very simple binary racial reaction coming out of the West where I think so many people were placing this in a U.S. or European filter and interpreting it that way because that's the only way they know how. And yet in China there is a different set of context. However, several people on Twitter kind of, you know, said enough context doesn't explain this. And you in your post kind of say at some point we have to draw the line. You know, this is tough because uh, most Chinese people like the vast majority of white people in the United States simply do not have the software to be able to talk about these things because they just don't have the life experience to be able to understand the sensitivities that are required. I'm not saying that as a reason or a rationalization to make it okay, but it is just the fact and the reality. So if we don't provide the context behind where it came from and we say, as you point out in your blog, enough, well, what are people supposed to do if they have no clue on how to talk about race?
2: I know. That's something that I've been really kind of reflecting upon over the past two days in particular. And as I was writing my article as well, and Roberto picked up on this when we had an exchange on Twitter, um, whose work is incredible as well, and he's done a lot of work in Guangzhou. I think for me it's weird because um, I'm a black Brit, so, um, you know, I myself have... um, kind of dealt with, uh, you know, racial identity issues like growing up in in the West, growing up in England, London, and then dealing with, you know, me being, people considering me very European, very English, very British, and then having my cultural roots that I connecting with and writing about um, and engaging with. Um, And there is this uh, battle in me to say, okay, even I myself struggle with these things, and how much more so would a native Chinese person who has no, like you said, they just don't have it—the uh, capacity, the experience, the exposure—to deal with talking about these issues. I myself find it difficult to talk about my my personal um, experiences and issues um, being being black and living in, in, in Britain and then moving here to China. But I think it's all a part about educating and we have to have this dialogue. We can't excuse it. We can't excuse it anymore and say, okay, um, over time, this is going to change. And with more exposure, with more um, interaction with others, the more they open up, this is going to change. But it doesn't just change spontaneously. Something has to be said something has to be pointed out. Hey, you, you have to be accountable. This is what, this is a problem. And that's the only way I see uh, people changing their mindset, about changing their mindset, which is deep-rooted. I think if they can take on things like, Uh, The problem, you know, problems in schools with not hiring black teachers. I mean, I've spoken to part of the documentary that I was filming last week. I spoke to a couple of uh, Chinese colleagues um, of one of my participants and I asked them about these racial dynamics in the workplace and what did they think about it. And, you know, you'll be surprised how many are very aware that this is a problem and that it's not right You'll be very surprised. And more often than not, there is, they have something to say about it. And they have their own personal convictions and reasons to why this is a problem in their society. So I think we also need to give them a little bit more, um, don't just wash them off as people that can't intellectually engage in a discussion about race.
0: I'm a little bit less optimistic than you are only because from what we saw from this experience, The organizations or the organs within the society that should have taken the leadership in denouncing this uh, did not step up. We did not see the party step up to say this is not who we are. We did not see Xi Jinping or any senior political leaders, as far as I know, kind of step up publicly to say, you know what, China is now part of a global community where we have to interact with people from all over the world. We have people from all over the world coming to do business here. This is not who we are. It's a private business. They made that decision, but we denounce this. In fact, the Global Times newspaper in their first coverage was, why are foreigners being so sensitive? You know, I mean, and that's that that kind of knee jerk reaction that the that that the Global Times has, which is kind of the pit bull of the Chinese media for the rest of the world. And so really, you know, they made this apology, but I I think they made this apology under duress. I think that people came to them and said, you got to do something because this is now really bothering us. And they kind of said, oh, okay, you know, sure, we'll do it. And, of course, the Chinese do everything in the back channels. Nothing's kind of done publicly. And so I was disappointed a little bit that we did not see, you know, Chinese ambassadors in Africa kind of say, you know what? This doesn't represent who we are. But, of course, they didn't. So I'm not so sure where the consequences of their actions will come from because no one who has any leverage in Chinese society stood up and said anything. The only people that said things for the most part were foreigners and what we know about the Chinese is that they don't react well to foreign pressure. They don't react well to criticizing them about the Dalai Lama, about Falun Gong, about Tibet, about, you know, the list goes on and on and on. So if this is foreigners trying to force change in China, I don't think that'll work.
2: No. Force changing doesn't Um, cooperate. I know it sounds very utopian, but uh... the meeting of minds cooperation and kind of uh, just like i said before opening up a dialogue yes um, it's very difficult. When I talk to my Chinese friends, um, they don't like to be pressured. They're very, very um, indignant when it comes to criticising their culture or their practices or the way they do things, the way their government does things or chooses to do things, how they choose to react to things. And I think that goes without saying. And I, I actually wasn't surprised that we didn't get that initial like, state leaders or ambassadors standing up and, and talking about this openly. I wasn't surprised. I was disappointed like the rest of us, but I, I wasn't Surprised by that, but I also think there's something to be said about grassroots levels activism, and I don't know, edu- not not necessarily activism, but um, education and discussion and um, enlightening others and uh, speaking with others and uh, changing changing things from a grassroots levels. I think in some circles that's exactly how it can and and must and will happen. Um, I don't necessarily think we need to be um, led into this. Uh, you know, international, you know, recognition of multiculturalism and the importance of it and the merits of it. I think the people themselves, us and our communication, our engagement with others here, that alone is where we can start and have to start.
0: And to be fair... Uh, The response in China and on Chinese social media was not entirely negative There was a lot of people who came out and said this is racist. This is bad This is not who we want to be and that is uh, from that grassroots social media level that you're talking about So in that sense, I think once again the youth uh, Do present some room for optimism This is the same optimism that we have on the ivory issue where there's cultural changes Uh, the young people today uh, are, you know, young people are for the most part are far more cosmopolitan than their parents are. And so we did see some of that come out on social media. So I just want to acknowledge that last question for you. Um, did this change your kind of feelings for China or how you, you see you as a black woman living in China? Did it have any effect on you and your relationship with China? I
2: think I've I've had kind of different emotions over the past two days to it. Um, when I first saw it, I was um, not surprised. But even though I wasn't surprised, I was still angered by it. Um, and then I was just disappointed. And then I felt like other people, what am I doing here? And, you know, are things ever going to change? Um, it hasn't really... I go through moments. I, have, I almost have a hate and love relationship with China. And um, I have on uh, grassroots levels have great relationships with Chinese people, um, uh, women and men. And one, the only thing that irritates me or frustrates me is that um, when these kind of things happen, uh, people that are, do have friendships with me, do have relationship, relationships with me socially and professionally, I would like for them to um, engage and to talk to me about these matters and to be open to how I feel, how others might feel about this. Um, the lack of that is is what's... Um, is what's hurting me the most, is what's frustrating me the most. I think these things uh, will happen here. Um, we've got a long way to go. But I think those that are in environments like my work colleagues, in an international environment where we, you know, we study and we write the news and we talk about these things, engage with me, engage with it. And don't just ignore it. Do something about it. Let's talk about it and, and see how we can move and push forward together. And that's, that's how it's affected me.
1: I could really hear the kind of stress this caused for her you know kind of like in, in, in the discussion with her and it, it it sounds like it was a rough week um, to have dealt with this and then to also have like to, to have to articulate all of these all of these you know these, these kind of hurt, hurt feelings and kind of conflicted emotions Emotions, and to also to have to balance the the kind of day-to-day interaction with people you know, um, who are part of this culture, and then the culture comes back at you with this other kind of really hurtful depiction of you. Um, and it's you know kind of it's 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 something that I think that that lots of minorities deal with, but it's also it kind of gets muted sometimes and then other times it comes back at you. Um, you know, as, as a gay man, I know that myself, you know, kind of like like some days it's fine and then other days you hear something horrible. Um, and so it's, um, you know, kind of, yeah, I was very struck by that and, and and kind of saddened by the entire situation.
0: Yeah. I mean, it was, it's very personal for a lot of people. And I think for people on the internet, the outrage is easy and it's, and it's free and it's cheap and there's, you know, it's, you just go on and kind of spew on Twitter and Facebook and, you know, and kind of express that this is the worst thing in the world. But obviously for for Africans and for black people living in China who have to confront with this and deal with this, it's difficult. But let's kind of be – let's put some perspective on this as well. And it's interesting that I got some, some very good perspective from all places. Ad Age – no, Ad Week, I'm sorry. Ad Week uh, magazine, which is a journal that I follow professionally quite a bit. And they put a reminder up there that said, they, they put in, in, in this article that, that I published on our Facebook page, that one, the use of kind of horrific racial imagery in soap advertising is something that dates back over 100 years in the United States and in Europe. So there, the, Chow B is certainly not the first and will not be the last to kind of do this type of advertising, and it has a long precedent. And it, as you pointed out earlier, it is not the worst. Um, the other kind of point that was brought up in the Adweek article was some tweets from different people who, who kind of remarked that Americans were very quick to jump on the racial outrage in China, which, again, absolutely justified in doing so, but have not expressed any near the hostility towards Donald Trump and his racial stereotyping. And I think people were kind of making that contrast because there's a lot of demagoguery that's going on in the United States right now towards immigrants, towards minorities, towards even towards black people and that level of intensity was not is not on evidence in in many cases it certainly is on the streets and in lots of different areas but a lot of out, on the online outrage it wasn't there and that's something that the adweek article also pointed out as well so i'm not necessarily saying that myself i'm saying go search on adweek to kind of find that perspective so there is some interesting kind of takes on this both from the internet outrage and the actual Ad itself, Kobus. Let's wrap this up now and kind of look back again on the whole affair. And what is the one thing that kind of stands out for you on on this whole this whole episode?
1: For me, what stands out the most is the need to have wider, broader, deeper conversations about race, and to try and and find ways to talk about race in and, and racism. On Western contexts, um, you know, kind of the to to kind of widen it from from white versus other race kind of discussions, and to kind of to to talk to talk about it in, in lots of different ways, lots of different contexts. Um, I'm I'm just back from a conference where you know kind of which is was preparation for a book where we we're actually talking a lot about. Um, about Afro-Asian encounters and how all the different, complicated, and unhappy ways that lots of people, that like people from from Asia and Africa, have encountered themselves each other, I mean—and um, these include, you know, kind of papers on racism against Africans in India, for example. You know, kind of all of these, all of these different in, kind of moments where people, people from different backgrounds, are horrible to each other. You know, um, and it's—I think it's really important for us to find a way to to talk about it and to talk about it in a space that doesn't necessarily always have to request it, but to find some kind of other way to complicate that that conversation.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll, my takeaway from it all is that I felt like the conversation that was going on among Chinese, both on our platforms, but also on Chinese social media and the Chinese web was entirely different than what was going on in the West. And, and the two were talking past each other. And I think that one of the things I would like to do personally is to do more to engage uh, China and the Chinese internet on these racial issues, because I think that this isn't the last time that's going to happen. As you pointed out, the Chinese oftentimes get very indignant when their media kind of jumps the wire and goes global, and people don't always understand what's going on. And so the Chinese have a tendency to kind of turn into this defensive crouch of nationalism and kind of get away. And I think we have to have these discussions and these debates with the Chinese to understand why this is so important to help, you know, broaden the horizon of, you know, awareness of diversity and multiculturalism. But that conversation still has to go on in the West as well, where those issues are unresolved. So those are our takeaways. We'd love to hear from you, what you think. This is an issue that has been generating more comments and, 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 questions that we've that we've gotten on our page at facebook.com slash china africa project we'd love for you to post your thoughts on what we've said also what the issue is what nicole said in the interview uh it is one that is just rich with different topics to talk about Kobe if people want to follow what you're writing and thinking about these issues where's the best way they can stay in touch with you
1: You'll see me on our Facebook page, that's facebook.com slash China Africa Project, and there we update a 24 hour day curated feed of new China African news items. I'm also on Twitter at stadenesk. that's S T A D E
0: N E S Q U E. And you can find a lot of the articles that I've referenced in today's show over on my Twitter feed at EOLander, that's E O L A N D E R. Also, you can find us on uh, on the internet at chinaafricaproject.com and there you can sign up for our e our e newsletter that goes out every Monday. Uh, We're sending it out uh, basically with five or six top stories, a podcast, an academic article. It's a great way to kind of stay in touch with what's going on on the web. And we also want to give uh, a shout out to some of our new partners who are uh, publishing, uh, you know, China Africa Project content. uh, Pulse Ghana, Pulse Nigeria, Yes Africa. Uh, and soon, the Huffington Post, we're just thrilled that they're all there. Kobus, it sounds like you have to go catch your flight. So we are very, very happy to to kind of bring the show to an end from Cape Town, where Kobus is on his way back to Johannesburg. I'm Eric Olander. We'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.